and get an idea if you just run with it, but you really need the class content um, for you to be able to fill in all those gaps. Okay, so the first thing that I want us to delve into, the first thing that we're going to be talking about, who's ever heard of the term presupposition? Okay, one person. Okay, so a presupposition is a thought or an opinion that you have before you encounter a thing. A thought or opinion that I have before I encounter a thing. How many of us know that you do not come to the Bible empty? You already have a thought, you already have an opinion, you already have an assumption about what you're about to encounter and what you're about to read. <coughs> and to a large extent, what you're going to read is going to be translated through the lens of that opinion, of that thought, of that presupposition. So presupposition has a powerful way in guiding how you are going to understand or go through the text. So it is important for you to understand the presupposition that you already carry. Presupposition is built over time. It's built with uh, the thoughts and opinions of others, the culture in which you are growing in, how you translate regular information. So that presupposition is imperative for us to understand what it is. So we're gonna talk about some presuppositions that exist, but what is principally important is to understand what the Bible wants us to have as a presupposition. So the Bible actually tells us the thoughts that we need to have as we approach the scripture, okay? So that's the guiding light. Because at the end of the day, what we are wanting to have is for the Bible to have authority over us and not us have authority over the Bible. So we don't want to read in my thoughts and opinions and look for the Bible to tell me that my thoughts and opinions are correct. So I should be in a position to where I'm ready to have my thoughts, opinions challenged when I come to the scripture. If I come to the scripture with the thought process of I'm looking to see I'm right, I know I'm right in the way I'm thinking, then as you read that is what you're going to get, which is not what God is wanting for us to have. The most misunderstood being in all life is God. Because everybody then assumes God's position. Everybody assumes God's feelings. Everybody assumes God's thoughts. And so because of those assumptions, we sometimes miss what the message is that God actually wants us to have. Okay, so have you heard the scripture that says only a wicked and perverse generation seek for a sign or seek for a miracle? Okay, many people are after the miracle. Why do you think that would be called wicked? Why would Jesus say only a wicked and perverse generation seek after a miracle? Why would that be considered wicked? Exactly. Before the miracle is, it has already existed in the mind of God. God is an artist. Are there any artists in the room? You can raise your hand so I can see you. If you point. Yeah, paint. You don't have to be a professional. If you paint. Right. But, but when you paint, what do you do? you have the full picture of the painting in your mind before you actually paint it, right? So it exists in your mind before you actually paint the image. Then you go on to paint. So it is with the miracle. God has already seen what the miracle is before the miracle actually happens. So to seek the miracle, seeking the end product, what you want to seek is what is in the mind. Because what's in the mind of God is God's idea who he is. Once you understand the mind of God, the miracle is inevitable. But when you seek the miracle and you miss the mind of God or the idea of God, you never get to know him. So then it'll answer the question, why do miracles happen? Why do miracles not happen? What, is, what generation are we in where we don't see people getting healed like they saw in the Old Testament? It'll then answer that question because now you understand the mind of God. So 
what this whole class is setting us up to do is to understand the mind of God. Because then once I get his mind and understand how he thinks and what he wants and what he desires, it becomes easier to answer all a bunch of questions that come your way. Because one thing that you are involved in, whether you choose to be or not, is something called apologetics, which means you stand to defend your faith. And if you don't have the understanding of God's mind, it becomes difficult for you to defend your faith. Why do you believe what you believe? And many people that believe also that are Christians of various denominations will come and ask you those tough questions. It becomes difficult to answer those questions if you don't understand the mind of God. Okay? So, let us begin with knowing those uh, presuppositions that I think are essential, and then we'll go into uh, the presuppositions that people mostly have and how they lead to a misunderstanding of Scripture. So this is the thing that we're going to want, that I want us to get at the end of this class. The Bible was written by men. So which means, if it was written by men, it should be read as any other book that you pick up. Okay, because it was written by men. So, all scripture is God-breathed. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful and profitable for teaching, rebuking, and correction uh, for, the men of, for, for, for the men of God. So, men wrote the book. But God-breathed doesn't mean that you've got... Peter, and he's about to write his letter in 1 Peter, and he goes into a trance, and he starts to write. That's not what happened, right? Moses didn't have the same experience. He didn't sit down, and all of a sudden, he's in this dark trance, and then he wakes up, and he goes, what have I just written? Oh my gosh, this is wonderful stuff. That's not what happened. Moses was writing as Moses, and writing the context of the literature as it came into his mind. Just the same as Peter, just the same as John, just the same as Matthew. And nobody was writing these documents thinking, you know, one day people at New Song are going to be able to pick this up and read it. That is not what they were thinking. They were just writing as they were going about their life. So, which means it was written by men and it is to be taken as a book, as a normal book. So, which means we study the historical context, what was happening for Moses to write what he wrote. What was happening around his time for him to write that? What is going on with Peter? Because when Peter writes, it's a different time than when Moses is writing. So we have to look at the Bible as a book that's written by men. Does that make sense? So we don't want to take it as this, you know, we, we, we have the culture, and I think it's everywhere, where we take the Bible, right, before you're about to say what you're about to say in court, you place your hand on the Bible. How many of y'all, that does nothing to make you speak truth or not truth, okay? So it's not like some infusion happens in you and all of a sudden you're trapped by the Holy Spirit and you're not gonna be able to lie. Or you're out there, you can put your hand on 15 Bibles and you can lie. Why? Because the Bible is not a spiritual document that has spiritual power in and of itself because it is a book that was written by men. Are we together? Okay. And so the cultural context must be taken into consideration and is imperative for us to research. And whatever is unclear, it is important for us to seek the clarity of whatever it is the author was wanting to communicate or to convey. So that's number one. Number two, since scripture is God-breathed, it is unified in all its parts. Okay, so here is the thing that, um, so it's unified. Did I spell that right? Yes. It, okay, I was about to say, so there's Zimbabwe one way. Okay, so it's unified in all its parts because the overarching author of the Bible is God. Right? 
So the overarching author of the Bible is God. So therefore, all the 66 books have to be unified in speaking the same thing. Does that make sense? So you cannot have Moses arguing with, with Peter about a concept or about an understanding. It has to be unified in all its parts, and that unity needs to be sought. You need to go after that unity. So when you read a passage that seems to convey one thing different to something else that you read, this is not a time to stop and say, yeah, the Bible contradicts itself. See, I saw this and I saw that, and there's a contradiction. No, my presupposition is it's unified in all its parts. So whatever it is seems like it's contradicting itself it is incumbent upon me because of my presupposition that it's unified to seek that unity. Okay? I need to find it. What is it that I'm missing in order for me to understand it? So it's time to take pause and figure it out. And these guys are going to teach you some of the skills that you can do, that you can use to get that going together. So you need to compare scripture with scripture. You need to compare scripture with scripture, because God is not going to speak one thing in Genesis and say, jokes, you guys, it's not right, in Revelation and say, forget all I said in Genesis, this is what I was trying to say. Everything has to be unified. And then finally, since scripture is God-breathed, it is absolute. That means it holds authority because it's God-breathed. So it is written by men. It's unified in all its, part, in all, in all its parts, and it is absolute. That means it has authority. So when the Bible tells me a thing, I am going to look for that absolute authority and know that it pertains to me, and I have to follow it. So I'm not looking to dispel God's authority with the Bible and say, well, God doesn't do this, God doesn't do that. I'm looking for what God wants me to do, God wants me to know, God wants me to understand, and that is what I'm going to follow through and live by. So, which means there's a response on my part. Because it is absolute, my response is faith and obedience. That's what God's looking for, faith and obedience, which means, as I understand it, it's a book written by men, and also seek the unity of its parts, at the end of the day, what I'm seeking to do or be is to be a person of faith and to be a, an obedient person, because the Bible is absolute in its authority. Does that make sense? Okay, so these are the thoughts or the opinions that I want you to have as you build on that as you go into into the word. Now, each and every single one of us has a presupposition, a thought, or an opinion. I'm not so much so wanting to change you. I don't think that's my job. I don't think I can, even if I tried. But I want you to identify your own and see it does not have the final authority in that it is the scriptures that actually have the final authority and not the presupposition. Because if the presupposition or the opinion has the final authority, that means it's the, it's the opinion that's in charge, not the scripture. And so I'm not here to change that. I'm here to show you and guide you onto some of the things that you need to be thinking about as you get into, into the scriptures. Okay. So, two words. I don't know how I'm going to erase this. Okay, so, but the two words. Thank you, Daniel. This is, this is online. Online people, Daniel is erasing the board right now, making it clear for me. Okay, the two words that I want to pit against each other, and you can give me your understanding of it. What you guys think. What is the difference between reading and studying. What is the difference between reading and studying? Understanding. understanding? Okay. Board right on. Okay. Un understanding. So when you study, you're seeking to? Okay. And when you're reading? Sometimes 
Okay, you're not going as deep, okay? Anybody else want to add to that? Yes. Okay, so you have an intention to apply. Okay, so you study to understand and application. My pen is dying. Okay, application. Why else do you, what is the difference or why do you study over reading? Mm -hmm. Right. So you're getting a more in-depth experience when you're studying versus when you're reading. Yes. Okay. Your attention goes up. So you've got a higher attention to detail when you're studying. I like that one memory. Okay, so we agree that there's a difference between reading and studying, okay? How many of us in here read the Bible versus how many of us, don't show your hands, versus how many of us, <laughs> versus how many of us study the word, okay? Many people in the church don't read the Bible. Few read the Bible and even fewer study the Bible. There's one term, one word that people that I've come across detest, maybe because of the history of it or maybe because of what somebody did that was going by this term, and so then they have a hate for it. And that's the word theologian. You hear the word theologian, so you're like, ah, I'm not a theologian. Ah, I have a relationship with Jesus. I don't want to be a theologian. All of us in here are theologians. That means we study God. That is what a, theolo a theologian does. Study God or study the word of God, making you a theologist. Okay? So it is imperative for us to go deeper into actually studying the word of God as opposed to just reading it. Reading it is great. Don't you go tell Pastor Josh, I said, don't read the Bible. I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, we need to study. We need to go beyond the reading and going to actually studying the Bible. Why do people not study the Bible? What are some of the reasons why people don't study the Bible? Hold on to that. <laughs> Hold on to that one. Okay, yes. Okay, that's a good one. They don't know how to, yes. Scared of what you're going to find, so you're not going to study because you're going to be told you're a bad person. Okay, that's a presupposition. Okay, <laughs> okay, what else? Why do people not study the Bible? It takes time. Okay. Mental energy. Okay. Don't know how to apply it. Okay. Good one. Exactly. These are all true. Yes. I already know it all, so I don't have to study because I have an awesome pastor. Once he preaches, I got it down. I don't need to get in there and study it. He's going to tell it all to me on, on a Sunday morning or Saturday evening now too. Right? And that's true. People don't study the Bible because of all the reasons that you've said. And I'm going to translate what Mr. Rainey was trying to tell us. People are lazy. Because studying the Bible takes... Okay? It's different from just reading it. It's different from picking up uh, daily bread and just reading a little page and then moving on your way. When you're studying, you need to actually take time out. To go in depth. In Acts, uh, Luke speaks of the Bereans. He says the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. And I'm doing this on purpose. Notice I'm not giving you the chapter and the verse. Okay? I want to see who's going to be interested enough to see that what I'm telling you is actually in the scriptures. Okay? Because there's going to be homework after this. Isn't that exciting? 
So, the Bible says the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they took what Paul said and went and searched the scriptures to ensure that what Paul was saying was in line with what the scriptures said. Are we going to be Bereans or be Thessalonians who, hey, that Tondrai guy, he speaks well. So whatever he says is probably true because every time he talks, I kind of feel nice inside. So I think, I think he's got this down. So yeah, he said that. It's got to be true. No. You can take any speaker you want. You can take Pastor Josh if you want and say, wow, Pastor Josh's sermons are amazing. They're phenomenal. Okay? So whatever he says, it's got to be true because, hey, he's just an awesome speaker. Right? No, my friends. We are to be Bereans and go back into the scriptures and search for ourselves because this relationship is personal. It is not my it's not Annie's responsibility with the kids. It's not Pastor Josh's responsibility to have a relationship with God for you. The relationship is yours, and it is personal. So if you're wanting to deepen your relationship with God, then it is important for you to study the Bible. Okay? It becomes important because then if you don't study the Bible and all you do is just read it here and there or on a Sunday, you cannot really deepen your relationship with God. And where there is no study, it becomes easier to be swayed to and fro by any wind of doctrine. That is another scripture. Okay, I'm saying this is not an opinion that I'm saying about being swayed. It's in the Bible. So I want you to write these things when I say it's in the Bible, because your job is going to be to search it and find where it is in the Bible, okay? So it is in the Bible. To not be swayed by every wind of doctrine, and what studying does, gives you the roots, the foundation that you need in order for you to be competent as a person who understands what the scriptures teach and what God desires. So you've got 2 Peter Chapter 2, verse 15, if you look at it from the King James Version, study to show yourself approved as a workman who correctly handles the word of truth. That is why it is imperative for you to study. Amen. Okay, so now that we know that we need to study, and we touched a little bit on the presupposition that I come to the Bible with certain thinking. My opinion is there. Before I even open the Bible, I have a thought, I have an opinion. And as I'm going through the Bible, I want the Bible to speak to me and not me to speak into the Bible. Let's go a little deeper into understanding the presuppositions. And I'm going to give you some presuppositions that on their own lead people going off and veering off into a certain path and not getting the fullness of what God has for us. So... Can somebody who's brave enough to read Joshua chapter 6, if you can read J Joshua chapter 6 for me? Wants to be brave. Oh, yeah. And read into the mic. Who has a bombastic voice and can read? <gasps> Nobody. Okay. I don't care. All right, Annie. Got it. Go ahead. Joshua chapter 6. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army 
advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets at trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priest who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So, so he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went around, went ahead of them, and the rear guard following the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the, uh, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city, the city and all that it is, that all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are in and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will be you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. They put the silver, the gold, the articles, the bronze, the iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her because she, because she hid the men. Joshua had sent his spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced his solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the one who understands, uh, is, cursed is the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho, at the cost of, of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Okay. All right. So we're dealing with presuppositions. Thank you.
for, for reading that. So we're dealing with three, three suppositions, and I had them read the whole chapter so that you can get a picture of what's happening here. So a presupposition is going to determine, by and large, how we're going to interpret this particular text. So this is an example of how a presupposition can affect my understanding of what the word is saying. So there are four common presuppositions that if you're going to be in the world of, of hermeneutics or just uh, the idea of studying the scriptures that exist, okay? So the first one is naturalistic. So a naturalistic presupposition takes away the element or the understanding of anything supernatural. So there's got to be a natural explanation of how this happened. So when a naturalistic mindset looks at this particular test of, of scripture, they say, nah, the walls didn't really come down. That's not possible for somebody to just blow out a trumpet and much seven times and then walls start crumbling down. So I have to seek a naturalistic explanation as to what could possibly have happened here. What is it that happened here to take away the element or the understanding of the supernatural? Does that make sense? So you'll find people today that can explain away the reason why there are no miracles in the church is because We've always misunderstood the, the, the term miracle. The idea here is just for us to have good morals and good sense about us. That is what God desires for us to have. So this story here that we're reading about Joshua is teaching us about a, having good morals, being obedient to, to the Lord, and just following whatever instructions he's given us, whether it be silly or not. But scientifically, the walls didn't really come down. That's not what really happened. All you got to do is have a good sense about you. Okay? Because that's just natural. So that's what a naturalistic mind is doing. Trying to rationalize the things that cannot be explained naturally. Does that make sense? So that's a naturalistic, uh, a naturalistic mindset. So... Naturalistic mindset will look to say, okay, the parting of the Red Sea, okay, that really didn't happen, okay? It was really a swamp, and the, what they really meant was the Reed Sea. There were reeds, and so it was called the Reed Sea, and it was a swamp, and they just crossed over it. But the idea is to know that you've got to obey Jesus, you've got to obey, obey the, 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 the Lord in the things that you're doing. Does that make sense? Naturalistic, Okay. Then the next one is, is supernatural. So the supernatural is always going to seek on the, stay on the supernatural high and assume context behind every context. So there's not just one understanding here. So we're not just looking at what the author said. We're looking at all the possible avenues to explain what is happening in Joshua chapter 6. So the walls did come down. But... This is representative of so much more than just Jericho. So Jericho could represent your sin. So you need to march seven times around your sin. And then on the seventh time, you march around it seven times again. And then when you shout out with praise, the sin's going to come crumbling down. Okay? So, <laughs> so taking it to a more extreme and not looking at the text and saying what, is, what happened in the text or what is God trying to communicate in the text, but then reading further into it and taking that as a principle to apply on everything. So a supernatural mindset would say, okay, so seven days, we go about our life and uh, doing the things that we, we normally do in life. The seventh day is when we go to church. Then the preacher stands, speaks the word, and the walls of ignorance and the walls of all that stuff then comes crumbling down. So that's how they would look at Joshua chapter 6 to try and read into the supernatural mindset of that all. So, so there are multiple meanings. And, and we'll, we'll, you, we'll get to talk about that. We'll get to talk about that. Multiple meanings in the scripture. Is it there? When you read a particular scripture... Does it have one intended meaning only, or could there be 15? Right? Again, we're staying with a supernatural mindset. Could there be 15 meanings, or is it just one meaning? Or is it several meanings? What does that look like? So when I'm reading this, and I'm looking for personal application, personal application for Joshua chapter 6, 
how is that going to look like? I'm looking for my personal application, my personal experience with the text. What is that going to look like? If I have a supernatural mindset, then I'm looking deeper into that to see how that would apply to me or a revelatory sense of the actual chapter. Okay? So that's a supernatural mindset. Existential. Existential tries to bridge both of them. So an existential mindset believes that, you know, at the end of the day, we really create our own morals. Okay? We really create our own morals and values. So in essence, the Bible is not made by God or the word of God is not from God to men, but it's rather men who created a God and the concept of the word so as to be morally upright. So when you read and you write this excellent text, you're trying to look for the moral attitude of it all. So it can be supernatural if to you if you want it to be and can be natural to you if you want it to be. But the bottom line is you need to be morally excellent. Okay? So what most existentialists will ascribe to, again, with this, this became a very popular thing with the Reformation, which I think Ashley is going to teach you about. But the idea of personal interpretation, because long back, it was only the church that was allowed to read the Bible and interpret it to you. And then came the reformers of Martin Luther, and then they fighted, fought for that, and then obviously now we have personal Bibles where I can read for, for myself. But the idea is, with existentialists, because it's a moral good thing. It's, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the moral strength of it all. So it's really not authoritative in that sense as far as it is con concerning my own personal morals. So therefore, people will say, okay, I need to know. Am I going to be able to buy that house that's close to the mountains? Okay, so I take my Bible, I open it, and I put my finger, and the scripture says, you have circled this mountain for too long. Whoa, that's what the scripture said. I'm not buying the house in the mountain. See, so people then do that with the text. Because again, all that's important is, my personal moral, my personal position, how it's going to affect me morally, how it's going to affect me and my life. So that's what I'm looking at it for. So I'm going to just play around with the text and let it just guide me along as to where I end up as long as it translates to my personal morals. Then the last one is dogmatic. When I was growing up, 1937, old preacher McDonald said this, and that is how it's always going to be. That's dogmatic. I'm not going to change my ways. I had a powerful experience when I came to New Song Church. Pastor Josh preached this message. It was impactful. I had this experience that I'd never had before. I went home and I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit like I've never felt before. And then I began to speak in tongues and I began to have this experience. Don't tell me any different that that is not how it works because that's how it worked for me, so I'm never gonna change. That's dogmatic. I'm going to stay with the old understanding or the old revelation that exists, that how I've understood it is how it ought to be. And so then people have struggles with new things. How many of you are familiar with the Message Bible? Okay, so the, the dogmatic mindset when the Message Bible came out, how can you have a Bible like this? No, King James is the only divine Bible that exists. Do not read anything. If they're not reading King James Version in your Bible, you're being led astray. Okay? That's a dogmatic mindset. So they will not accept the message Bible that was recently translated because oh, we're not going to accept those new things. Okay? So a dogmatic mindset. We didn't look at the Joshua 6 examples. So the existentialist mindset when they look at Joshua 6, they say this is a call to personal religious faith and it's of the 
of, of the utmost importance is the call to the religious faith. So the call that Joshua made, that is what was important because we're looking at personal morals. So the existentialist looks at Joshua 6 and says that was the utmost importance was the call. And they came and they came together. Everything else is not important. So don't worry about the destruction of the walls. Don't worry about the marching. The fact that they all came, that's the lesson. And they stopped there. Then the dogmatic mindset will be like, hmm, I have a problem with this text. Because earlier on I read that God is a loving God. And I cannot imagine him causing a whole city wall to crumble and people dying. And so they move over that text. Or they didn't take a look at that text to see, okay, what's happening here? How can I understand God better as I go through, through the word? Okay? So those are the different mindsets, and that's how people are dealing with the text. Now, as I'm saying it to you, from whatever mindset you have, from whatever position that you are right now, I do not know. But you might look at this and go, huh, people do that? Yeah, you and me, we do that. Especially if we don't get into a place of actually studying the scriptures. And it is easy for us to feel truth rather than to know truth so if we're lost in the feeling of what is truth then we're never going to seek deeper into what truth really is so because i feel one way i start with a dogmatic because i felt one way like you were saying i'm scared to find out what's inside i felt one way i'm scared to go in and be told what i felt or what i experienced was not right because of how good it felt to me. So I'm afraid to go in. As an existentialist, you can look at that and say, well, at the end of the day, what does God really want us to be? Doesn't God just want us to be good people? Isn't that what's really important, that we're good? Which is why it's easy for people to say, coexist. Let all these religions just coexist and get together and hug it out. Sing Kumbaya. Right? Because at the end of the day, surely that's what love is, is that you and I get along, you and I, and, you know, have a chummy relationship. But God himself says, yeah, I've come to turn the father against the son. Jesus says that. I've come to cause confusion. Because he's coming with truth, and some people are not going to be happy with truth. So there's no coexist. Okay? But you got to get into an in-depth study to see why coexist and love are two separate things. Because then it's easy for you to say, yeah, but it is love. I want to love the Buddhist. I want to love the guy who's into Taoism. I want to love the Muslims. So yeah, let's all just get together into a room and just agree on the things we agree and move on. Right? That's existentialist. The supernatural is always looking for a high. So, again, when I'm saying these things, it could be far removed and you're imagining somebody else. But I want us, you to know we walk through these things. And I'm going to tell you why in a second. But the supernaturalist is looking for a high. How was the church service today? Well, it was all right. It wasn't good as last week. Because last week, the songs that were played really got to me and I felt connected to God. But this Sunday, I don't know, David had three, four new songs going in there. I didn't know a single word of those songs. I didn't even understand the beat, so church was kind of bland, but <laughs> that's all right. There's no revelation. <laughs> Everything he said, I already knew. And so church wasn't that great. But then the day comes when the song is just hitting you right. The message is just coming on strong. You know, that, that's church. Church was awesome because it's all based on a supernatural feeling. Wanting to have the wow factor. Okay? Because remember, the reason why study is difficult, because study is not going to be driven by the feeling. And that's what we got to understand. Even when we, talk, when we talked about it, we said at the end of it, God wants faith and obedience. Okay? Faith, at some point, can have a feeling attached to it. Yeah. But true faith stays when that feeling is gone. That is why we struggle with the word consistency. Because I'm like, I'm all in because I'm feeling high. But when the high goes, 
I stopped doing things because the high is what was driving me, not true faith. So that's why people don't study the Bible. They just want the high. And that's why the supernaturalist is always looking for that high. Because they feel when the high is there, they can push on. Every person who is successful in whatever it is that they're successful in is because they're consistent. That means they keep doing the things that they're supposed to do long after that feeling is gone. Okay? And then the naturalistic mindset is always skeptical. You know, pray. Somebody says, hey, you know, I was having trouble with my headache. And they laid hands on me, and I went for the altar call. And when I came back, my headache was gone. So I was healed. Well, you know, your headache started at 2 in the morning. It's now 9. Surely by now your body is adjusted. Let's look for the chemical understanding, the scientific understanding as to why your headache is gone. Because that's really what's happening here. Not necessarily the fact that something supernatural happened. So the naturalistic mindset is always trying to explain the things that we then accredit to God and say, God did this. God came through for me. You know, I went to the bank and I was looking for a loan. I'd gone to five banks. Nothing happened. I kept believing God. And the sixth time they gave me the loan. Yay, praise God. Well, let's look at the statistics and the odds. If you keep going to every bank, at some point, one bank is going to say yes. So was it really God? Or was it just one of those things that happens? And sometimes when, we, when I'm talking about it, it's easy to say, yeah, 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 I can get to see it. But these are silent experiences that happen in the church where you sit down and you start thinking to yourself, was it really God though? And we do that even with hearing the voice of God. You feel like God's telling you, do a thing. I've called you to this place. And then you sit down for a little while and go, yeah, well, that's, is that really God though? Does that really sound like God? I mean, if it's God, how does God really communicate to us? It's just me thinking out loud. Right? Naturalistic mindset. Now, the problem here exists if we stay in one lane. So here's the truth of it all. Each one of this, these, which is the naturalistic, the supernatural, the existential, the dogmatic, each one of them are correct. But all of them together. So in other words, yes, the Bible is natural. So the instances when you read it and an explanation is a natural explanation that you don't have to be overly supernatural about it. Jesus went throughout all the towns. He's going throughout all the towns in that particular city. There's no supernatural meaning to God, Jesus going throughout the towns. So you don't have to apply something supernatural to that. There is supernatural People were healed as Peter was walking and people passing by Peter's shadow. They were being healed. That happens. You don't have to ignore it and say it doesn't exist. It doesn't happen. It's part of it. But if you want to understand the Bible, it's all encompassing. Existential. Yes, the Bible is going to teach us about good morals. It's going to. But the authority is the Bible. So which means I don't let... The, I don't let my experience determine what the meaning of the Bible is, or what the meaning of the text is. I let the text explain my experience. Okay? I let the text explain to me what I'm experiencing and what I'm going, what I'm going through and not read it through. Dogmatic. Man, there are some things that should not change. There's some things that should not change. As much as, and we'll talk about this in class number four, as much as we have different dispensations, different times, different cultures, the truth of the word doesn't change. So we're dogmatic about that. Yeah. So what God says doesn't change because now I live in this type of society or in this type of culture. So it stays the same. So there's a place for all of these. So as I was talking about them, and you were thinking, oh, that's terrible people who do that. Oh, my gosh. How does anybody do that? Well, we all need to, depending on 
the text, depending on what we're reading. And again, these guys will uh, tell you some of the skills when you come to a particular text and you're reading it. So, then there's a position that I need you to take after understanding this. What is your own personal presupposition? What do you think? Before you open the Bible, what do you think about the Bible? Moreover, it's a question that you need to ask yourself when you're reading a particular version over another. What is your thought? Think about that. And as you think about that, there are four things that I want to give you that are going to be imperative for you to be able to actually go through the Bible, read it, read it for what, what it's worth, and read it for yourself to strengthen yourself as, as, as you study it. So, these four things pertain to us. So we talked, the first three things is the first presupposition what we need to have when we come to the Bible, but this is who we need to be, okay? Number one, you cannot study the Bible if you're not born again. Impossible. The people who study the Bible in an effort to disprove the Bible, in an effort to discredit the Bible, but to get the true understanding of what the scriptures teach, you need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And being rightly related to the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6 to 16. I'm going to sum summarize this here. Who has known the mind of God except the Spirit of God? So the Spirit of God gives us understanding of the text. If you're studying or reading the Bible without the Holy Spirit, you're missing it. Okay? I'm trying not to preach. I'm trying to teach. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's imperative that you are born again. It's imperative that you have a relationship with Jesus. You have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, without which true understanding of Scripture cannot be achieved. The second thing is you've got to make a commitment. So as you're sitting in a class like this or when you listen to a sermon on a Sunday and you're feeling the vibes, you make a commitment, a commitment to actually studying. So just because you're born again and spirit-filled doesn't mean you are committed. So you have to take a position wherever you are, this very moment, whenever you came into a full knowledge of Christ, or whenever you hear a message that inspires you, you've got to make that commitment, without which you will not get into the depths of what the scriptures teach. That commitment means, if I see an error, quote and unquote, in the Bible, I am committed to finding the wholesome truth. Committed. There was something... See, I go on Facebook just to see what y'all are doing. I really don't want to do something. I just want to see what is everybody else doing so that I can remain relevant and talking and going, wow, the world's going crazy. At some point, I was like, oh, this is too much. I can't take it, man. People are going too fast in their thoughts and opinions. I can't take it anymore. But one thing I saw was a question was posed. Does God change his mind? That was the question that was posed. And so a person comes in and says, hmm. I'm going to research that for you. And I thought, oh, great, they're going to research it. That's how you're supposed to do it. Then they came back later and they said, yes, God changes his mind. Because remember in the book of Genesis, when um, Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice, God had told Isaac, hey, listen, God had told Abraham, take Isaac and sacrifice him at the top of the mountain. And just when Abraham was about to go, he said, stop, because God changed his mind. 
So God does change his mind. I don't know if that's what that text is saying. I can see why you would think that. Okay? But I don't think that's what that text is saying. So, a committed person would be like, there's got to be more to this because this text doesn't fully explain about God changing his mind. If they had dug a little deeper, they'd find there's a scripture that actually says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. That should have settled it because that's explicit. Right? That's explicitly said. And I don't know if one of these guys will talk about this, but write this down. The implicit, which is the implied, what you think the scripture is implying should always give way to the explicit, which is something that is explicitly said. So if you're reading the text and it implies a thing, it implies something, once you see it explicitly written, you'd get rid of that implication and now you stand on what has been explicitly said. So in that instance, it was implying that God changed his mind in this text, but I get rid of that notion once I see it explicitly written that God doesn't change his mind, and now I am dogmatic because I see that it's explicitly written. So I'm not gonna change my mind that God doesn't change his, that God doesn't change his mind because I've seen it written and it's there, right there. See? And you'll find that the problems that you have mostly are implicit scriptures, where it implies a thing. And people decide to go in 50 different directions on something that is implied. Okay? That's where you have people having issues. But when it's explicitly said, that should end the thought or the argument. Okay? So, we want to be committed um, as we read the scriptures. I'm going to give you John chapter 7 and 17. That is in reference to commitment. And the next thing is prayer. How many of y'all talk to the text when you're reading the Bible, when you're studying the Bible? Talk to it. Oh, I don't understand what you're saying over here. I don't understand. I, I don't see it. I don't understand. It just seems contradic contradictory. Like for me, the hardest, one of the hardest texts to deal with, who's familiar with Phineas? Okay. I want you all to be familiar with Phineas. The next time we see each other, I want to ask you, where's Phineas in the Bible? So, the Zimbabwean way or the actual way? Because I, I don't think I know. Oh, may, oh, maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong. Can you help me? I-N-E-S? E-U-S. Is that correct? Uh, somebody Google that. Okay. All right, let me tell you the story about Phineas real quickly. Because I need to, I'm supposed to give you only an hour and 15 minutes, but... I feel like this is so much fun. I could go on forever. But, so, in the Old Testament, there's this couple that is committing adultery in the tent, in a tent somewhere. And as these people are doing their wrong business, God is killing people for what's happening in this tent. So I might be going to the field or I might be going to look for pop <laughs> and I die because somebody else is doing something wrong over here. So Phineas takes a sword, runs into the tent and kills this couple. And the moment he does that, the killing stops. It's not a boring book, guys. There's so much soap opera going on in that Bible. Oh my gosh. I'm like, what? Okay, so I, I looked at that text, okay? But again, my presupposition of what love is says I'm not going to punish Eli for what Steve is doing. That's not fair, right? That's not fair. If Steve's up to no good, why should Eli suffer for it? So that's what's happening here. Somebody else is doing something, 
And God's busy judging people and killing them. So when you look at that text, I'm like, what? Right? But an in-depth study will show me that the laws were given to the children of Israel on how God wanted them to conduct and how if they did one thing, this would happen. So it not applied to individuals, it applied to the community. Okay? He says, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will heal the land. Okay? And, 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 and it's, it's his people. So if it's just Tondurai who just decides, okay, I'm going to take this seriously and everybody else is not taking it seriously, God's still going to look for his people. God might send me to say, hey, guys, we need to get together and follow what the word is saying, that his people need to be uh, seeking his face, being humble and praying. And we are his people. And so he was looking for the community of Israel to be following that truth, which means that I owe, I am my brother's keeper. I am there to make sure that my brother is okay. So by not caring about what was happening in the tent, being aloof to it, in most cases means I am prone to it. I agree with it. I am doing it also. I am okay. My mindset is in that place where I'm saying, yeah, that's an acceptable practice. No worries about that. It's what happens in society. I don't have to pick it out. I don't have to be worried about it. So people were off that mindset, which is why they don't call it out. But Phineas is righteous in the sense that he actually takes and, uh, the, 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 the sword and he kills them and he places judgment on the sin. And then killing stops so you got to watch for those things okay you got to watch for those things but to get to the depth of that as i'm reading this i am praying i'm talking to god i don't get this because this is what i understand love to be i read earlier on that you love everybody but i cannot understand what this means because as you pray then god will help you get understanding because remember while you're reading you're born again, which means the Holy Spirit is there with you. So you're committed, and then you pray. And then lastly, my favorite. Is humility. If I go into the text with a, man, I, I know it all. I got this. Nobody really can tell me new things. I've read Genesis like five times and I got this. You know, you're not going to open your eyes or your mind to let God feed an understanding into your heart and into your mind. Here's the thing Do you have confidence in who you believe and why you believe? Do you have confidence in that? If you do, you should never be afraid to put it to the test. But if you lack confidence and you're scared that you're going to change my mind, you're going to make me Catholic. I don't even want to step into a Catholic church because you just might end up making me Catholic. Okay? Then there's a problem with the confidence in why you believe and who you believe. Okay? At the time, I was like, oh, I want to go to a, uh, to a mosque. I want to see what they do. No, no, brother. Stay away from those places. Well, I have confidence in who I know. I have confidence in my faith. I want to go and see what it is that's leading them astray, why they think the way they think. I'm not afraid that when I get in there, I'm going to end up being Muslim. Why? Because I have confidence in whom I've believed and whom I know. So I can put everything to the challenge and know that it will stand up because it is the truth. It is not some truth. It is not a truth. It is the truth. So you put me in any situation any circumstance, any place. Okay, Andrew, now I'm preaching. You put me anywhere you want. I'm still going to stand strong because I know who I believe and I know whom I believe. I know who I belong to. I know who I am in him. So I'm not afraid to stack up my understanding with anybody's at any place because I know. And the reason I know is because I study the word of God. 
I study it. I don't just read it and peruse it. I'm not just a simple influence of the people that have taught. I too have gone in and searched the scriptures to see what's the truth here. How does that apply? How does this change my life? What is the thing that I'm supposed to do? So I too can listen to them and say, mm, I don't think that's exactly how it looks like what you have said because I've studied it for myself. That's where you want to be. Where you're always open and humble to know that as you read the text, it's not my understanding that has authority, but it is God. It is his word that has final authority. That's where you want to live. So I'm always humble to say, okay, now I'm reading the text. I know my pastor taught me this and that was awesome. And it really impacted how I thought. And I can see the change in the translation in my life. And I'm looking at it and I want to read it. I want to understand it. I want God to speak to me. God, let me put aside my presupposition. Let me put aside my thought. Help me. Speak to me. Okay? That's the prayer. And I'm humble enough to know that I need it. I'm humble enough to know that I need the Holy Spirit. I'm humble enough. And I'm going through the text and asking God to speak to me. That's the position I want you to take. This is the presupposition about yourself that I want you to build that that's who you are. You're born again, filled with the Spirit. You're committed to reading the Word. You're going to read it in prayer, and you're humble. Humble enough to know, I don't know everything. I don't always understand everything. And I still need Him to teach me and show me the way. Amen? All right. So...